And let's ask the Lord for his grace as we open his word. Shall we pray? Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days through your Son, the incarnate Word, we now pray, O heavenly God and Father, that you would open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that Word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write it on their hearts, your holy law, even as you've promised. Pray these things, O heavenly God and Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Then turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, we're going to read the verses 1 through 5. No, we're going to read the verses 1 through 10. I believe there are three sermons that remain in the Galatians series. Verses 1 through 5, the verses 6 through 10, and then the verses 11 through 18. And then we'll, that'll take us, including our celebration of the Lord's Supper, to Lent, if I'm not mistaken, maybe even a little past it, or the opening of Lent. And then we'll, um, in our Lenten series, we'll be back in the book of Matthew, just by way of note. Uh, We had last year to finish up Matthew, but we didn't, so we'll do that this year, and that will begin, I think, in Matthew 27. But today we're going to read the verses 1 through 10 of Galatians 6. Let's hear the word of God. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So that's our text today. Our text for next week is this, or no, not next week, the week after. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's follow the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 6. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have noted that the Apostle Paul has shifted gears in his letter to the Galatians. He has shown them the error of their ways. He has shown them that works righteousness simply is inconsistent with the gospel, that there is no place in the Christian life for the believer to assume to accept their own good works as sufficient for salvation, for a relationship with God, as though we can 
prove to God as though we can demonstrate by our, our deeds a worthiness that God will then bless, that God will then benefit us with. And, and we, we have a, a persistent tendency to think that. We have this unfortunate tendency in all areas of life to think that. We've seen a, a daughter baptized today. Think about parenting and think about how as parents we have this unfortunate tendency to believe that our parenting style, that our parenting structures are enough to ensure that our children will grow in the fear and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That, that when we see other parents, when we see other families struggling, we think to ourselves, well, if they would only parent the way we parent, if they only would do it the way we do it, because the way we do it is right, and the Lord blesses our way. As though somehow or another the salvation of our children's souls is a consequence of our parenting method. It's easy for us to think that. And in all areas of life, we do this. In marriage, in work, in business, in relationships, in everything, we have this unfortunate tendency to think that somehow or another, by our own good works, we can please God and so obtain from Him blessing, particularly salvation. But that's not true, and the apostle has demonstrated that not to be true throughout the book of Galatians. And now he's transitioned to a more positive uh, message, a message about how the Christian then lives. If, if that's not the way that we live, if we're not works righteous, if we're not Judaizers, if we don't think that it's Jesus plus good works, then what is the Christian life? It can't just be faith in Jesus Christ, surely. It can't just be grace alone by faith alone, surely. That can't possibly be true because then we as believers would be given no motivation, no desire. Why would we ever live for the... Why would we ever worship? Why would we ever do anything good if it's all by grace alone through faith alone? And the apostle certainly most recently has reminded us that that grace alone that is sent into our lives by God through Jesus Christ is applied to us, is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that given the Holy Spirit, our lives are transformed after the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that's why, having been set free by Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are now changed. We live new lives. New ways of living are open to us. Indeed, that's why Paul most recently said, keep in step with the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, reminding us of just how dark and dismal life is when we walk according to the flesh, and how glorious life is when we walk by the Spirit. Remember those lovely qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, he says, there is no law. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. Those who live that way are alive in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they can, and they glorify God rather in the way that they walk. Well, now, that is the, the, the way that the Christian is to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the way of the Holy Spirit, in the way of love. For that is indeed what the the Word of God teaches concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. He works in us a love for God and a love for our neighbor. And that's the one thing that I think the world tends to agree with us on to some degree. That is, as Christians, we say you ought to love each other. We ought to love everyone. And the world says that's exactly right. All that doctrine you people teach, get rid of that. All of that sin business, we don't need that. The Jesus is the only way of salvation stuff, no good. 
But love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule, the be kind to others. Yes, says the world, that is so good. And so often, isn't it the case that the church dilutes the gospel to the point where that's the only thing that's left? Love others. There are so many churches, aren't there, with their uh, rainbow flags in their front lobbies, with their signs that say, we accept everyone who stand upon this one teaching. We love everybody, they say. We, we welcome everyone. We have a love for all men. And that's not really love, though, is it? That seems loving. That seems to be consistent with what we teach. There is a bit of an echo of the gospel in it. But in many respects, the love of the world is worse than any hatred you might experience. Because the love of the world says to the dying, uh, the, 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 the dying uh, sinner, to the one who is so uh, completely wrapped up and addicted to their sin, the world says, you're great, you're, you're lovely, stay exactly the way you are. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine walking down the street maybe in Toronto or some other large city and you see the homeless there on the side of the road sitting above their grates with all of their stuff? And you say to them, oh man, I accept you exactly. I'm not going to do a thing for you. I don't need to do a thing for you. You're exactly the way. Could you imagine the oncologist going through the cancer wards in the hospital saying, you don't need, you're ex- ex- the way you are is, ex- I accept you for the way you are. That's the love of our world. That's the way the world treats sinners. It doesn't offer them freedom, doesn't offer them deliverance, doesn't offer them any hope, any help any grace. It just says, I accept you. Now, the reason I think, at least in part, the world does this is because it's very easy. That kind of love is very easy because the love we're called to is very hard. And that's what our text teaches us also this morning. The law of God teaches us to love God and our neighbor. Love being the the heart of the law of God we have to fulfill that law. That is, we have to love one another. But to love one another biblically is not like the world's love. It is a love that is sacrificial. It is a love that is ultimately what brought Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Listen to how Paul begins. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. He says, if anyone is caught, if anyone is caught, that word caught has this idea of being absolutely captured by sin. That is almost like like a bandit capturing somebody on the road as they're traveling from place to place. Somebody getting kidnapped, you might say, being wrapped up in the arms of an enemy and held against their will, put in jail, you might say. If anyone is caught, in their transgression, in their sin, in their rebellion against God. They're they're in it and they can't get out. They are wrapped up in these cords and they can't free themselves. That's such a, a powerful, it seems to me, description of sin. A good and fitting description of what it means to live in sin. All of us, Father, all of us stumble and fail. But when sin wraps its cords around us, when we're addicted when we are captured, when we are 
stuck in sin, can't get out, can't stop. That's what the apostle has in mind here. Those who are caught in any transgression and those who are spiritual should restore him. Now, spiritual here should not be understood to be a second class, an elite class of Christians within the church. That's sometimes the danger we have. We read this and we go, okay, spiritual people, that's somebody else. I don't have to obey this text. That's for the elders and for the deacons and for the minister. That's for the leaders of the church. The spiritual ones, let them deal with these issues. But no, you have to hear Paul's words here in the light of uh, chapter 5 and verse 16 and following uh, in the passage just before where the apostle reminds us that to be spiritual is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit is to keep in step with the Holy Spirit and is to apply that work of the Holy Spirit in moments such as these. All Christians who are born again through faith in Jesus Christ are spiritual. And being spiritual, we are to encourage, we are to minister to, we are to restore our fellow men. We are to restore them. We are to take them out of the pit to which they've fallen and put them back on the way that is straight. And we're not to leave them in their sin. We're not to sit in their sin and commiserate with them and say, yes, this is terrible, but there's nothing we can do about them. About it. We are to take them from that place and we are to point them to the way of righteousness, to the way of obedience and faith, to the way of the Lord. We are to restore them, says Paul, and we're to do that in a spirit of gentleness. Here again, This connection between the previous passage and this one is made clear because you'll remember that gentleness is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. So that Paul is here saying, having been given the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you are now to apply that in this way, he says, when you see a brother or a sister caught in transgression, you are to restore them with gentleness not harsh but winsome tender kind loving each other in ways that you want to be loved just think of that if you find yourself in a moment like this how would you want somebody to minister to you how would you want them to help you out of the misery you're in and then apply that in the context that you're in indeed paul says you are to do this keeping watch lest uh, you also be tempted be tempted either to fall into that sin thinking that it's okay that's often what happens isn't it in a community where we don't call sin out for sin if it becomes okay then more and more people start to live in that broken way but it can also mean in terms of not being tempted not being tempted either to to avoid to avoid the the demand the responsibility of loving one another Because there is, isn't there, a a real challenge here that we all have to face and deal with. Paul's saying to us, if you have a brother or a sister, whether that's genetic, right? Whether that's literally in your family, whether that's somebody in the church, somebody you know is struggling, who's caught in sin, then you are to, with gentleness, restore them. Which is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do for us who are called to give that advice, encouragement, that ministry. It's hard for us to come up to a brother or a sister. I mean, we all probably know somebody. 
Even right now, we all probably know somebody who's making some poor choices. Somebody that's, that's living, uh, maybe drinking too much alcohol, maybe uh, is, is uh, in a relationship they shouldn't be in, uh, is uh, at work uh, a, a kind of a person that isn't appealing, isn't winsome for the gospel, isn't showing the grace of God at work in their lives, who's maybe more ungodly than godly. And now, now Paul says to us, well, you, you need to be the one who speaks a word of encouragement to them to restore them to the right and narrow way. And that's awkward, isn't it? That's embarrassing. It's a bit messy, right? You don't want to say something and offend this person. You don't want to lose this relationship and that sort of thing. And to be honest, calling others to repentance really does expose our own failings too, doesn't it? I mean, if you want to find out what you've done wrong in your life, ask somebody close or say to somebody close to you that they're sinning. Say to somebody close to you that they failed. Because they'll say, wait a second, who are you to say to me? that I'm failing. You, I remember when you were in high school. I remember when you were just married. I remember a, a time when we were out with, with buddies that night. Who are you to say to me that I'm sinning? Calling others to repentance exposes our own failures. It's much easier to live, isn't it? And let live. It's much easier to just say, oh, as we drink our coffees after church Sunday, Oh, did you see that one? Oh, it's so bad, isn't it? Too bad for them. And never to say a thing. But people of God, Paul here is calling us, calling us to be spirit-filled Christians, to be spiritual, and in the spirit, to love. Because that's really what's at the heart of what he's saying here. He wants us to love each other. Surely that... That is a quality, a characteristic of our community that we want to develop and inculcate and we want to display to the world. In a world where love is so cruel, we want to show a place where love is tender and kind and gentle and loving. And surely the the best place to do that is in those moments where sin has crept in, where sin has captivated a heart. Because sin, people of God, is miserable painful, brutal. Sin is not something that we want to be in, to be caught in. It doesn't bless our lives. It destroys us. It breaks relationships. It brings shame and guilt. It causes us grief. Sometimes we don't see that. Sometimes we don't want to see it. And sometimes we get caught up in it. But surely if we love a brother or a sister... If we say that this is my neighbor, the one whom God has brought across my path, then we need to be kind to them. We need to be gentle to them. We need to be loving to them. Which is to say, we must seek to restore them. Imagine driving down the road and seeing a car in the ditch. Don't you want to stop? Don't you think maybe I should stop to see if everything's okay, to see if I can provide some help here? And now imagine that that car is recognizable to you. It's a, it's a friend. It's a, it's a family member. Surely then you will definitely stop. You'll say, I have to stop here. This is somebody who needs my help. Isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do here? Isn't that exactly what the Spirit of Christ is working in our hearts? A desire to see those that are struggling, those that are caught in transgressions, redeemed restored 
back on the path, traveling with us ever forward. To be sure, this requires a great deal of humility. It requires removing logs from our own eyes. It requires dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It requires our being willing to mess up. After all, nothing worth doing is easy and requires practice. Sometimes we do say the wrong thing. Sometimes we go about it the wrong way. And sometimes we have to apologize for that and say, my heart was in the right place, but my mouth was in the wrong place. Forgive me. We need to be gentle, to be sure. When we're wounded, we don't want someone poking and prodding at that wound. We want someone to deal with us gently. When we sit in the doctor's office, we want that doctor who's about to break some bad news to us to be one who has a good bedside manner. We want him to be gentle. And we aren't to get worked up as a congregation about every failure. This isn't a call to be busybodies. This isn't a call to nitpick. You are to treat others the way that you want to be treated. You are to be gracious and forgiving. None of us is close to perfect. We're not talking about any transgression here. We're talking about being caught in transgression. Being wrapped up in it. Being enslaved to it. There's a difference between the mistakes we make every day and being caught up in a sin. And we are to be aware that we too can fall into this sin. That is, we are not to be self-righteous when we go to a brother or sister and say, I think there's a better way. I think, I think you are caught up in sin and I want to see you restored. Things aren't going well for you. I see that anger. I see that, 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 that lust. I see that, that drunkenness. And I know that that's miserable. And I know that's an ugly place to be. And so I want, I want you to come out. I want you to come with me. We need to be willing to minister to one another. Indeed, that's where we need to start in this passage. We need to start by saying, I'm willing. I'm willing to be corrected. I'm willing. If I get caught up in sin, correct me. I'm willing. But I'm also willing to encourage you. I'm also willing to put my neck out to offend just like you think every day, every vet must have this experience. In comes some animal who's got some issue, and now the vet has to touch, has to feel, has to figure out, and you know that that dog isn't going to be happy. That cat is going to reach out and scratch and try to get a hold of that vet. That's the same thing that happens when we minister to sinners. Sometimes they scratch and they bite and they do harm. But it is for good that we do these things. We have to be willing to love each other with sufficient sacrificial zeal that we see each other restored. Indeed, it's James Montgomery Boyce who on this text summarizes it so very powerfully. He says, It is easy to talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit while doing very little about it. So Christians need to learn, he says, that it is in the concrete situations rather than in emotional highs that the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives is demonstrated. We are to fulfill the law of Christ by loving each other. And that means, first of all, says Paul, by carefully restoring those caught in sin. But it also means more. It means that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Here the apostle reminds us to not only minister to those who are struggling, to those who are burdened by sin, who are caught up in sin, but we are to bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Burdens are burdens. What are burdens? Are burdens transgressions that we get caught in? That, that is certainly true, isn't it? When you get caught in sin, it's a burden. But given that Paul has just talked about transgressions, it is probable that here he has a, a much broader concept in mind. That when he says, bear one another's burdens, he's not, first of all, talking about those things that we do wrong, those sins that we fall into. But that he's talking here about, you might say, the the weight of this sin-cursed world. That's a big category, I understand. But think in terms of, certainly, illnesses. Think in terms of relational distress. Uh, Think in terms of uh, anxiety, discouragement, depression. Uh, think, think of all of those things that, that just weigh our hearts down, that burden us. Grief and sorrow, pain and struggle. Things not going the way that we want them to. Things not going the way that we think they should. I think we've all been there at some point, or we will all be there at some point, burdened by the fact that this world, this world is broken. There's such a pain in it, such a grief and a sorrow in it. Sometimes it's when you see other people. Sometimes it's when you, when you see the struggle and the strain of loved ones that you, you wish that it wasn't this way. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. That law is simply love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Christ. That's, that's the command that he places upon his people For that is what Jesus himself did most perfectly. Most perfectly. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. Loved us in a way that we cannot and are not required to love each other. None of us can love the way Jesus loved. He who is divine and man. He who bore our sins to the cross. Who died bearing the infinite wrath of God against our sins so that we might be redeemed? God doesn't ask you to do that. He knows you can't do that. That's why He sent His Son. But in His Son, we do see, don't we, the picture of perfect love. We see that the Lord gives to us life by His sacrificial service. He did not come to be served, but to serve. No greater love is a man than this, than that He then they lay down his life for his friends. Loving, for, loving our neighbor as ourself is what Jesus Christ did. And we show, we show, we demonstrate that we are under his yoke, that he is our master, that we truly believe in him, that we walk in his way when we love each other in this same way. When we love each other, not condescending, not with conceit. When we condescend, we only fool ourselves. But when we love each other, after the example and in the way of Christ. Now here, it seems to me, is again another distinctive 
of the Christian community, another countercultural characteristic of Christians. Again, the world will talk about love. The world will talk about all sorts of blessings, tolerance, and all the rest. But the truth is, we live in a culture that says we're the center of the universe. We're the most important person that exists on the earth now. And everyone and anything serves to exist, or exists rather, to serve us. It doesn't quite say it, of course, in that way, but that is the import, isn't it, of all the commercials, of all the TV shows, of all of the philosophies of our age. Maybe even now, even now as we're sitting in church listening to a message about serving others, about loving others, about ministering to those who are transgressing, of bearing the burdens of others, bearing the burdens of this broken world. Maybe we're sitting in church thinking, you know what, I hope Buddy over there is hearing this because I tell you what, he's got to get busy helping me. Why, why don't my kids help me? But How come my spouse isn't? I hope my spouse is listening. They should be bearing this burden for me. We tend to imagine that these are words from the Lord to others who are to serve us. That is the characteristic of our fallen world. That is the culture in which we live. You exist. The church exists. Society. Structures. School. Teachers. Businesses. Businesses exist. Look, if I can't work, you shouldn't be upset about that. Uh, You should probably pay me more and give me more vacation. Uh, And if I don't show up on time, look, let's not get excited here, people. Your business exists for me, not the other way around. And when we live in a culture like that, then a call to do this, self-sacrificial love, is going to run against the grain, is going to declare us different in this world. And look, the truth is, the truth is sometimes we do need to admit we need help, to be sure. Sometimes we do need to be that person who says, look, I'm struggling. I'm weighed down here. Sometimes we wait too long to ask for support of others because we don't want to come off as weak. We don't want to come off as needy. We don't want to make it about us. Sometimes we think we can bear up under the trials of life, but we can't. We need help. We need to be able to acknowledge that. We need to be able to recognize that. We need to be able to say to a close friend, to a close family member, I'm I'm having a hard time. I, I need help. But let's at least recognize that Paul's call here is not to others, but first to us. And he's saying to every one of us this morning, are you ready to bless that person in your life, that member of your community, of your fellowship, of your congregation, who's struggling? Who's struggling because of, because this world, just because this world is a broken place, because their spouse is is in the hospital, because they're dealing with mental health concerns, because they're lonely. Are you ready to be a blessing? Not to judge, not to condemn, but to build up. That's not what our world teaches us to think. Our world says you should think about how badly you have it, how how everybody's made your life more miserable. Paul says, who can you help? Who can you serve? Who can you bless? And to be sure, the reason our culture thinks this way is because it's the most natural thing to do, even for us. Paul warns us, doesn't he, not to do things in a condescending way. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, says Paul. When he thinks he is something, he is nothing. It reminds us 
that we sometimes see the struggles of others as their own fault. Or that we don't need help when we're going through a tough time. We just need to man up. Sometimes we don't minister to others because we think, hey, wait a minute. I had a tough time a while back and nobody helped me out. Oh, why should I help you out? Basically, we don't minister to others far too often because we don't realize just how profoundly we've been ministered to by Christ. Because that's what Paul wants to remind us of when he says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The truth of every one of us here today, no matter how successful we are in business, in relationship, in life, the truth of everybody here is this. We were so desperately lost, so utterly broken, so deeply in sin, that the only hope any of us ever had was if the Son of God came down from heaven in the flesh and taking on human flesh, carried our sins to the cross, nailing it to the tree so that we might be freed, rising again on the third day. That's how despicable, how weak, how broken you are. Only the Son of God is able to save you. That's the only hope you have. That's how deeply you'd fallen. And if you have been given that and lifted up, if He has restored you by His Spirit, if He has bore your burden with you, ministering to you along the way, if He's given you grace and strength in the moments of great weakness, if you have felt His presence, if you have felt His staff as He has walked alongside you, if you have felt His rod as He's ministered to you, and you have been blessed by your great Shepherd, And surely, you who are being made in the image of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit ought to also live in that Christ-like way. When we walk in the way of the Savior who bore our burdens more perfectly than anything we can do, then we also show the world that we are in Christ. Then we glorify God and say, God, I know why you have saved me so that I might be a blessing to those around me. Bearing each other's burdens is not easy. It carried Jesus to the cross, and it may demand more of us than we're ready to give. It's messy, it's heart-wrenching, and it's hard. But it's Christ-like. It's living. It's loving. It's free from sin. It is radically different than our world. It's what we've been given. For having been given grace, surely we should give grace. Surely we should give grace. For we have been so blessed. Indeed, isn't that how the passage ends? But let each one test his own work, says Paul, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, there is some difficulty in understanding exactly what the Apostle Paul means here, particularly when it says, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. Generally, we don't like boasting. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord and that he loves him. We are not to boast in ourselves, but in the Lord. So when Paul says, then he has reason to boast in himself, that gets a little bit uh, sideways. To cut through all of the clutter and all of the various arguments for and against various interpretations of this text, let me me suggest to you 
that what Paul is saying here is something along these lines, that basically we shouldn't compare ourselves to others. That's really, it seems to me, what Paul is saying. Let each one test his own work. Don't, don't, don't compare yourself to someone else, because then you'll have reason to boast in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That is, I'm not better. That's what we do when we compare ourselves to others. We say, well, look, I'm better than that person. That person's not as good as me. And for each will have to bear his own load. So Paul's saying here that we shouldn't compare ourselves to others. We should fulfill the task that the Lord has assigned to us. And the reason that Paul says this, it seems to me, is because he understands human nature and he understands that conceit tends to prevent us from showing compassion, even as comparing ourselves to our neighbor prevents us from doing the will of our heavenly Father. Because in the end, so often, we look at our neighbor and we judge them. We look at what our neighbor is doing. We look at what responsibilities the Lord has given them and the responsibilities the Lord has given us. And we think to ourselves, well, this is what they should be doing and not what I should be doing. Each one will have to bear his own load, says Paul. The word load there is a different word than the word burden in verse 2. It's a word that has the idea of a backpack. It has the idea of, of the thing that you carry with all your tools or with all of your stuff. When you go to school, you put your books in your backpack. That's your load. That's what you carry in order to do the work that you've been assigned. Is that what Paul here is saying? Don't look at others, but essentially ask yourself, what does God want me to do? And I think it's important that Paul end here on that note precisely because he knows what he's called us to do isn't easy. What he's called us to do is to, when we see that brother or sister caught up in sin, is to, is to go and have a coffee with them, is, is to go and, and call them up and make a visit, is to, is to sit down for a minute and say, hey, I see that you're struggling and I want to help you. And I've been in your situation before. I know something of what you're going through. How can I how can I bring you to see that the way of Christ is better than the way of sin? Or when we see that brother or sister who's just burdened by the brokenness of this world, who maybe for no reason of their own is grieving, is sorrowful, is, 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 is broken down, maybe because of reasons of their own, is still bearing the consequence of this fallen world. And you need to go in there and you need to put your back underneath that burden and you need to lift it up with them. You need to give them respite so that they can experience blessing. Paul knows that these things are not easy for us to do and that we are inclined either to look at others and say, well, they don't deserve it or to say it's not my responsibility. We can be tempted to take this kind of ministry and leave it to the experts. Within a congregation of any size, we can expect that church officers, church counselors, that those who are paid for this work, that they're the ones who ought to do this sort of thing. That really, in the end, all we need to do is send a quick text off and say, hey, can you go visit, buddy? He needs some help. And we fulfilled the calling of Paul in this passage. But Paul says, no, that's not the way that you should think. That is not the way that you should act. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Paul says, see what God's given to you. Don't don't look to, you're in this lane. Don't look over at that lane. Don't look at your neighbor. Don't see what the Lord's given to them. That's not the point. What's the Lord given to you? 
What's the Lord asked of you? What gifts has He given to you? What opportunities has He assigned you? When we stand before the Lord on the last day, He's not going to ask us how our neighbor succeeded in living the Christian life. He's going to say, how did you do? What did you do with the gifts and talents that I assigned you? When those servants came, he didn't say, hey, how did the other guy do? He said, what did you do with the five talents, the three talents, the one talent that I gave you? We're all called to carry the load, the burden, the, the task, the responsibility that the Lord has assigned us. And we are to do it in gratitude for the salvation we have received. Really, that's what Paul's doing. Is he's, he's helping us to stop looking around and start focusing on the Lord. Because that's, that's what we need to do when we minister to one another. We need to see that it's Christ we're serving. That it is His grace that we are expressing. That it's His Spirit that is dwelling within us. What does He want us to do? Stay in our lane. He wants us to use the gifts He's assigned us. Don't comment on others. Just focus on what God's calling you to do. So that when he brings that brother or sister that's struggling across your path, when he brings into your life someone who's burdened, show them the love of Christ. Show them the love of Christ so that you can declare to God, I have used what you've given me. You gave me five talents, and I have returned five more. I have served you, my King, in grateful and in devoted service. That's what we're called to do as Christians. That's what we're called to do in this world. This world that is so full of the language of love, but so absent the expressions of love. We live in a world that wants to talk about accepting, blessing, benefiting. Well, here is the way that Christians do it. Christians truly love. For when they see a brother or sister struggling, they reach out to them. Whether it's in sin, or whether it's under the burden of of the weight of this fallen world, and they do it not because they're so good, not because they're so important, not because they've, but because they want to serve the Lord, because they want to focus on what Christ has done for them. Here's the way that we as a church can stand out from a very godless age. One of the ways in which we can shine the light upon the hill to a broken world is we can show them what it means to love, to love as God first loved us. Let's ask Him for a grace in that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give to us what we need in order to love one another. It's no easy thing, Lord. No easy thing. But you have given to us the grace that we need in order to do this. You have given us your Spirit. And by His strength and presence, we are able to walk in the way of your will, in the way of Christ. And to fulfill the law of Christ, to love one another as we have been first loved. Help us, O Heavenly God and Father, to answer this call. Help us to... And we have that friend. Maybe we can even think of one now. We A name comes to our minds, Lord, of a brother or a sister that's struggling in sin. Help us to gently, gently restore them. Maybe there's somebody in our family. Maybe there's somebody in our friend group that's just having a hard time. Or we can expect, we can assume they're having a hard time because they've been going through some stuff. And maybe we need to say, hey, how can I help you? What can I do? Lord, we pray that you would help us to bear each other's burdens. Not because we're so great, but because you have borne ours in Jesus Christ and we want to serve him. So bless us, Heavenly God and Father, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.